You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxham. As a student growing up in Jefferson City, the award-winning thriller writer Alan Eskin's future plans were simple. Survive school and join his father's drywalling business. But fate had other plans. In high school, he discovered theatre, started getting A's in anything theatre-related and got to hang out with the kids that were college-bound. And just like that, drywalling took a back seat to a college degree. A theatre degree in Iowa morphed into a degree in journalism in Minnesota and then a two-decade career as a criminal defence attorney. But the creative urge that had been sparked through his time on the stage never really left. And in 2014, Alan Eskin's first book, The Life We Bury, was published. Last month, his sixth book in as many years was published by Mulholland Books. Nothing More Dangerous is set in the fictional rural town of Jessup, Missouri, and is a coming-of-age mystery, a suspense-filled page-turner which explores the darkness of small-town secrets, blood loyalties, and what happens to those who don't toe the line. The story is told by 15-year-old Bodie Sandon, whose number one priority is to escape his rural prison, even if that does mean leaving his widowed mother lonely and alone. But when a local woman mysteriously disappears and a black family moves in across the road, Bodhi is thrust onto the front lines of race and class, a line that both binds and divides his town, and he is forced to choose sides. Welcome to the show, Alan Eskins. Thank you for having me, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. It was great to listen to you talk at Skylark Bookshop back at the end of November, and I learned a lot about you. So from a future in drywall to a career in law, and now multiple accolades as a thriller writer, I'm curious who has been more surprised by the trajectory of your career, you or your parents? Um, I would think it's me, actually. <laughs> I, I was always a, kind of an odd duck growing up, growing up in a family that... Our main focus was always construction, and here I take to the stage and start singing and dancing. So once I made that break, I think my, my parents were prepared for whatever came next. Uh, I, If you had told me back when I was in high school that I would one day be an author, I would have laughed in your face because I just didn't see myself as that person. So the fact that I'm here, it's incredible to me. I just never thought I would do this. And I think it's fair to say from your own words that you were a lackluster student. You were prone to daydreaming and getting a lot of written punishments. Did reading books or writing stories in any way cross your path as a young student? I had one experience. So when you say lackluster, that's actually being very generous. (laughs) (laughs) But I had one experience where I had a short story that I turned in in an English class. I think I was a junior in high school. And I really had fun writing that short story. And I, I went all out and not just turned in a short story, but I actually wrote, had a cover for it and art. And, and I got an A on it, which surprised me. And my teacher, when I was leaving the classroom, she kind of pulled me aside. And she goes, have you ever thought about writing to get published? Wow. And I was such a rude little jerk at the time. I just <laughs> laughed at her and said no and walked out. And 
that was it for me. I, I thought, you know, this was just my one. I, I just took a daydream, put it on paper, and, you know, to pass the class. And so when years later, and I got out of law school and I'm looking for something creative, I remembered that assignment and that teacher, and I thought, well, I wonder if I could. And so that's when I started delving into it. And now that you are a published writer, a very successful one, have you ever gone back and found that teacher and said you were right? I did. I tracked her down when my first book came out, and I sent her a signed copy. Uh, She did not remember our exchange, (laughs) but I did. So Nothing More Dangerous is your sixth novel, but it is also your first. Tell us the history of your latest work and why it's your favorite. Well, I began writing Nothing More Dangerous in 1992. I was just out of law school, just past the bar, and looking for something creative to scratch that itch. And I started writing this short story about a 15-year-old boy in Missouri. And I liked the story, and I liked the character, so that's when I started reading books on writing technique. I'd never taken a creative writing class in college or really studied it, so I started reading these books on how to write and became fascinated and intrigued with the process. And then I started taking classes, and I worked on that story for 20 years. And after 20 years... I knew that it wasn't ready, but I couldn't put my finger on why. So I put that story aside and started writing other novels. And the second manuscript I wrote became my first published novel, The Life of Barry. I went on to write four more after that before I finally had the confidence to go back and revisit that story I'd worked on for 20 years. So it was nothing more dangerous was my first manuscript, and it was literally the book I became a writer to write. And when you looked back at that draft that you'd put aside after working on it for 20 years and uh, with the experience of now being a published writer, could you then identify what had been wrong with it? In truth, I didn't go back and look at it. Um, I had been living with the story while I was writing my other novels and thinking about what I what was missing. And the experience of writing my other no- novels taught me some important things. Number one, I didn't outline nothing more dangerous but I outlined all my other novels. And so the first thing I did was I outlined Nothing More Dangerous from my memory of the story without looking at the previous story. And in outlining it, I went into greater detail on who these characters were, not just the main character or the secondary characters, but even you know down the line, bit players. I wanted to know who these people were in their daily lives. What, what were their fears? What were their desires? What motivates them? And understanding that aspect of all these characters made them more real in every scene and it changed the texture of the story even if it didn't change the the main thrust of the story so i wrote the story without even looking at that previous manuscript other than every now and again i'd remember okay i wrote a paragraph about this house that i think was really good i'd go back and find that paragraph and you know put that in the the new manuscript but um i didn't want to fall into the traps and mistakes i'd made writing that first manuscript. Have you subsequently gone back and read it and kind of compare and contrast with the finished version? I have not, and I don't think I ever will. (laughs) So over that 20 years history, I mean, you had worked on myriad drafts and you'd also spent a lot of time, as you said, honing your writing skills, but you'd also spent 20 years as a criminal defense attorney. So how did your life experiences change the arc of the story or the content of the book? In the early days, I didn't, I, I didn't see myself as a mystery writer. 
or a thriller writer. I saw myself as just someone who wanted to write more literary novels about characters. And as I'm writing this manuscript, the fact that I was a criminal defense attorney kept kind of tapping at the door. You know, that's the world I knew. And mm. so I added the, the mystery of this missing woman named Lida Poe later on in the process, primarily because I wanted to have something in there that, that kind of wove these various threads of the story together. And because I was a criminal defense attorney, I know investigations, I know police procedures, I, I, I know how this stuff works. So that was what I went to. How, how much of the 15-year-old Alan Eskins is in Bodie Sandon? Quite a bit. <laughs> Quite a bit. Um, actually, so I, I wrote this manuscript about this 15-year-old boy. And then later I was writing this manuscript, which became my first novel, The Life of Barry. And in that manuscript, I created a character who was a law professor. And it occurred to me that this law professor was really who I became after going through college and law school. And this 15-year-old boy was really a lot of who I was at the age of 15. And so I named this law professor Bodie Sandin because of the existence of this 15-year-old boy in this manuscript in my drawer. So it, it really is, it's, it's not autobiographical, but it is based a lot on you know, how I saw myself and, and the world around me when I was 15 years old. He's a very thoughtful young man, despite his lack of access to the wider world. I mean, it, this is set in 1976. There's no internet access. He's pretty isolated. And he's able to think fairly sophisticatedly, which I was thinking back to myself at 15. And I don't think I was that sophisticated. Were you? I had a girlfriend in high school once call me pensive. <laughs> um, I smiled at that and then went home and looked it up because I didn't know what the word meant. <laughs> And I, I kind of thought that, that yeah, I, I was a pensive kid back then. Um, in the story, Bodie would go out and just sit in the oak trees out in the woods and daydream and think. And I used to do that. You know, the, there's, a book, there's a tree in the book, The Leaning Tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a big oak tree that leans out over this pond. That is an actual tree that I used to love to climb. It's out in the middle of the woods north of where I grew up. And I used to just love climbing up in that, that leaning tree and just sitting there and thinking. So um, I, I do think I was a thoughtful, pensive kid when I was growing up. The book was really a roller coaster of emotion for me. Uh, your portrayal of rural racism was really hard to read. And on several occasions, I was just furious at what was going on. Um, and you're writing about, the, about racism from the experience of being a white man, and I'm reading about it as a white woman. So it's something we're both looking at from a position of privilege. So I'm curious about what you did to make sure you got the tone right. Well, on that score, every racial slur, every racial joke, every off-colored thing that is said in the book is something that I heard growing up or sometimes something that I said growing up. Right. Um, There's a conversation early on between Bodie and his his older neighbor, Hoke, where Bodie's explaining how he's not prejudiced and then goes on to say that he thinks black people can be just as good as white people if they try hard enough. That was from my own experience. So what I wanted to do is, you know, I can't write The Hate You Give. I can't write a book from the the black person's perspective. Um, I can't write a book from the perspective of someone growing up in Jim Crow era like Kill a Mockingbird. But I can write a book that expresses how things were when I was growing up in the 1970s. And um, at that point, racism was something that it was hidden. It was latent. It was something that when you're in 
small groups that you feel comfortable with, it would come out and express itself. But in the broader public, it would be hidden. And there was just this undertone of you know, people just assumed the way things were were the way things were, that that was how the world existed. And when you grew up in that era and you come to just understand those notions of us versus them, it takes a while to come to grips with the fact that you were wrong about that. And, and this, this book is really a you know, cathartic thing for me, writing about how I came to understand those subconscious prejudices that I had growing up. The title of the book comes from a quote by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that nothing in all the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. Do you, do you think that the malevolent characters in your story, who today we would call white supremacists, do you think they are sincerely ignorant? I think, yeah, their, their view of the world is based on ignorance. Ignorance is ignoring certain truths. So there's, there's different levels of ignorance. Um, so really, Bodhi, at the beginning of the novel, that quote is describing who he was at the beginning yeah. of the novel. Um, he was sincere in his beliefs, but he, you know, he didn't understand. He'd never seen the world from the perspective of Thomas, you know, the young black boy that he, he befriends. And over the course of the novel, because he befriends this young man, he starts to see the world through a different pair of eyes. He starts to understand and, and come to face empathy. But as for the, the, the darker characters, that particular clan represents different levels of the antagonistic force. So there, there's no single antagonist in the novel, but there's different members of this family represented. So there's you know, Cecil is at the top of the, of the pyramid. He's kind of in, in charge of it all. There's Milo, his brother. Below that is Jarvis, Cecil's son. And then at the very bottom is Angus, who is part of that group because that's his family. And it's not that he has these personal beliefs, but he has family loyalty. And so there's different levels of antagonism based on which of the family members you look at. There were certain sections of the book when I got to the end of a chapter and you, and you knew something really bad was about to happen. And I had to just close the book and take a few deep breaths and then come back to it because you were so good at building the suspense and I, and I, I just didn't want to read what came next. It was, uh, it was great. I love books that make me close them and take some breaths and then go back to them. So I've read that your book has been compared to To Kill a Mockingbird. Does that fill your heart with joy? It fills my heart with joy because that <laughs> is my favorite novel of all time. Um, it also fills me with a bit of trepidation because that's a... <laughs> fairly heady thing to, to hear someone say, you know, to, to read in a review that this book is, is comparable to To Kill a Mockingbird is, it's, it's, it's just beyond words, actually. <laughs> Talk to me about the theme of redemption and what appeals to you about it as a thriller writer, because I, I've only read two of your books, although I have all five out of six in the house right now. But it seems that in The Life We Bury and in Nothing More Dangerous, that redemption is really a central theme. I love the redemption stories, and I have always loved these redemption stories. I love stories where there's self-sacrifice um, involved. That, to me, is one of the deepest emotional type of stories that I can read. Or if I go to a play, it's it's that you know I'm sacrificing myself for somebody else just for them, not not for glory, not for anything, just because I want to make sure that they're okay. I've always loved that theme in in stories, novels, movies, and so I'm drawn to it. So when I was creating this story. And I was creating this neighbor who has a redemptive story. I loved his story as much as I loved the, writing the story about Bodhi. In fact, 
you could say in a way that this novel is as much about him as it is about Bodhi. Absolutely. I I loved Hoke. I was very drawn to him too as a character in the book and what his backstory was. And again, you teased that information out so beautifully in the book about who he was and what his story, his true story was. The enjoyment of writing this novel um, came in many, many forms, but one of the forms was as the summer goes on, Bodhi begins to see so many things differently in his world. Um, he starts the novel, as you said, he wants to escape it. And as the novel goes on, he's learning these secrets that were in plain sight his whole life. Mm. And uh, by the end of the novel, his world is very different than what he thought it was at the beginning. I'm excited to read your other novels. I know they're all thrillers. And, I, and I'm wondering, from the adage of truth is stranger than fiction, how much your two decades as a criminal defense attorney feeds into the content of your books? It plays a role in that it gives me a strong foundation uh, and confidence to write about mysteries and thrillers and, and you know, the, the whole police interrogations and, and investigations and stuff. But the actual content of the stories, um, the, the plot lines, those are things that come to me in my daydreaming. So I focus my daydreaming on it. I take a character and a seed of an idea and say, okay, so what would happen if? And then I just let my mind go. And because I have this background in law, I don't have to worry about knowing how to track a cell phone or you know, what I need for probable cause for a search warrant. I, you know, that stuff is already indelibly inside of me already. And I can, I can, I can run with my imagination. But the, the storylines are all from just my daydreaming, my imagination. Do you daydream multiple arcs of stories, or do you tend to daydream one and think that's it? Multiple arcs. <laughs> um, I, I, that's yeah. That's I, I love writing complex stories. I, I love subplots that break during Act Two to keep the the momentum of the story going. I have to rein it in sometimes because I'll be thinking about okay, here's this third, fourth level character that I'm I. And giving them a backstory, it's like, man, if I could just run with that, that'd be so much fun. But I've already got all these other subplots that I have to, you know, fit into this novel. So I have to like cut back sometimes on the subplots because everybody is the hero of their own story. Even secondary characters, third, fourth level characters, they see themselves as the hero of their stories. They are going through something in their life, in their world. And so once I, you know, daydream who they are and know that they have their own story it's sometimes hard for me to keep their story out of the novel I'm writing. Do you create the characters and then see where they take you? Or are you always the master puppeteer of their lives? I am the master puppeteer. <laughs> um, I, well, I mean, it took me 20 years to write Nothing More Dangerous, and even then it wasn't ready because I was just letting the characters tell the story. And so when I went back to it, the first thing I did was I outlined it as if it didn't exist previously, because I needed to be in control of the story. And um, yeah, so, so I outline my stories to a great degree before I sit down to write them. I know the external plot, I know the internal plot, and I know the subplots, I know how I want it to lay out. It doesn't always work that way, and if I change something as I'm going, I will then go back to my outline and see, you know, if I make this change, how will it affect the story going forward and back um, to make sure that it, it doesn't mess up some other plot line. No, I, I'm, I'm very much in control of, of, of the story. I, I don't believe that... I'm not one of those writers who just sits down at the computer and says, okay, Muse, tell me what to write. 
That seems to be most of the writers I've spoken to are actually not the master puppeteer. They they let their characters lead them. So it's always interesting to me how people approach their their works. Now, your first published book, The Life We Bury, is in development to be made into a film. So how far down the in-development pipe are you with that project? Not as far as I would like to be. <laughs> it spent three years lingering because the person that was writing the screenplay had not been able to produce a viable screenplay. So last year, the producers and I were talking on the phone, and they were they decided they're going to try and get a different screenwriter. Well, I had been studying screenwriting because I want to write the screenplay for Nothing More Dangerous, and so I thought, well, can I give it a shot? All you get to lose is you know a few months of, of delay. So they they said, go ahead. I wrote a screenplay last, this past year, and uh, they liked it. Now they're shopping it around to try and go to the next level, get a director and, and actors and stuff. So tell me about changing a 300-page novel, which is written in the first person, into a screenplay where all the content that happens inside the character's head has to basically be converted into action and dialogue. Is that a tall order? It is a tall order, especially with that first-person narrative, because The Life of Barry opens with my protagonist driving down the road, talking through his thoughts to the reader as to why he's driving down the road, where he's going, you know, what it is about this um, assignment that he has to do that he hates. So I have to change that into a different scene. So the opening scene of the movie is not the same as the opening scene of the book, just so that I can get that information out there in dialogue form as opposed to in his head. I could have done it with voiceover, but I didn't want to use voiceover. I wanted to try and be true to the story without doing voiceover. But yeah, 300 pages down to 120 pages of screenplay is a tall order. But because I wrote the story, I know the essence. I know the most important aspects of the story. Mm. And so the first thing I did was, again, I outlined it. I wrote the, the story in outline form saying, okay, what's the essence of this story? What's the most important central pieces of it? And then I moved out from there. What's second important, third important? And eventually you get to the point where, okay, this scene is lovely, but it's not necessary for the, for the story. I can you know, cut it or, or trim it down. I can add these two pieces of exposition from these two chapters together into a single scene. Um, and yeah, you have to be very, very economical in, in how you approach it. Who would be your dream cast for the film? <laughs> I wish I could tell you. I don't know. Um, there are so many young actors who I don't know who they are. Um, and this is a 21-year-old protagonist. His girlfriend is also 21. You know, I wouldn't mind seeing... There's an there's a elderly man named Carl Iverson who is the mentor character in the story. I wouldn't mind seeing like a Billy Bob Thornton or a mm. Ed Harris play him. But you know, honestly, there are so many good actors of that age and era that I think there's so many that, that could do a good job. Well, you have a background in theater. Would you consider taking one of the roles? I am going to get a cameo, <laughs> and that is all I want. <laughs> where, uh, I, where would the cameo be? I don't even know. Um, I, I picture myself sitting in, there's a scene in a, in a bar where Joe and Lila go and have a drink, and I think I'll be in the background having a beer or something. <laughs> I don't know. 
I do hope it gets made into a film. Knowing that it was you were in production or not in production, but in development for a film. When I was reading it, I was I was visualizing <laughs> the scenes. So I'll, I'm I'll be excited to see how it compares to my visualization of the movie. So given how long it takes for books to get published and the fact that you have now released your sixth novel in as many years, so you are um, pretty prolific, is your seventh novel already completed and are you working on your eighth? Uh, seventh novel is not. Um, because I took time off to work on that screenplay, uh, I am behind. So my seventh novel will not be out until 2021. Um, I'm writing it uh, as we speak. Uh, I, I plan to have a uh, draft to my editor early fall and then go through their editing process and have the book come out the following summer or fall. And you tease on your website that the protagonist of your seventh novel may be Joe Talbot, who is the protagonist in The Life We Bury, that it might be his girlfriend, Lila Nash. Is it going that to be correct. Lila? Yes. And, and again, you know, I love challenging myself uh, <laughs> just constantly. And this is going to be a challenge because I'm writing a female protagonist. And I've been reading a steady stream of female authors who write really good female protagonists to try and get in that vein. I, I, I want to make sure I do a female protagonist justice. My last question before we close is, uh, is about The Life We Bury. There is one incredibly tense scene in The Life We Bury where the protagonist escapes from the trunk of his own car during his own kidnapping. And it is so detailed. I wondered if you'd actually lain in the trunk of a rusted old car and worked out how you would escape. I have. <laughs> um, it, it, well, when I was younger, um, my brother offered to sneak me into the drive-in in the back of I can't remember if it was his car or his best friend's car. I think it was his best friend's car. And because I didn't trust my brother to let me out of the car, <laughs> the trunk, I made sure that I knew how to break out of a trunk before I got in. Um, we ended, I don't think we ended, I can't recall actually going into the drive-in, but I do recall practicing getting out just in case things went horribly wrong. <laughs> and you clearly did manage to get out. <laughs> Thank you so much to my first act guest today, the award-winning thriller writer Alan Eskins. Alan's latest novel, Nothing More Dangerous, as well as his other five books, are available at local bookstores and at the Daniel Boone Regional Library. Thank you so much, Alan. Thank you, Diana. So nice talking to you. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be chatting to artist Greg Edmondson about his latest body of work and the new art exhibit at Columbia College's Larson Gallery. Stay close to your radios. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Rather like my guest in Act One of today's show, my second act guest also switched his life journey and changed disciplines. When he was growing up in Durham, North Carolina, the artist Greg Edmondson's hero was the primatologist Jane Goodall. And it seemed like his calling was going to be the field of biology. But disillusioned with how biology was taught at college and inspired by an art history course he had drifted into, he decided to make the call he knew his parents would not be happy about and told them that he was going to be an artist. After college, he won a German academic exchange scholarship and spent a year in Cologne, following that up with a Fulbright scholarship, which culminated in a five-year stint in Germany and the chance to experience firsthand the tumultuous era that marked the fall of the Berlin Wall and German reunification. Back in the United States in the early 90s, he moved into teaching, ending up at Washington University in St. Louis for 22 years. 
But on April the 1st, 2015, Greg Edmondson turned in the keys for his former home and studio and headed to the Osage Arts Community in Bell, Missouri, for what was to be a three-month artist residency. He emerged four and a half years later with five large interconnected bodies of work and two books. Greg's new show, Living Like Animals, Paintings from a Truly Wild Place, created during his time at the Osage Arts Community, is on display at Columbia College's Larson Gallery through January the 3rd. And I'm delighted that Greg had time to come and chat about his work and the residency that he describes as confusing, at times wondrous, and ultimately terrifying. Welcome to the show, Greg. (laughs) Good morning. Today, we mostly think of the arts and the sciences as two separate disciplines, but of course, it wasn't always so. There is a lovely quote by Einstein who said, the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. It is the source of all true art and all science. So the unknown, the mysterious, is where art and science meet. So I'm wondering in what way is your work at that intersection of art and science and the mysterious? Well, prior to coming to this residency, uh, I'd had about a 15-year, decade-and-a-half-long practice that was based in sort of explorations of patterns of organic growth and kind of coding systems. You know, a a code is simply a pattern that is translatable. Uh, Everything we know is stored in some kind of code electronically. Everything we are is written in some kind of code internally, biologically. So... The work I'd been doing, it didn't depict the natural world, but it depicted the nature of the the way the natural world creates itself and inter- interacts with itself. But this work shifted significantly over the course of this long-term residency. You, I think early on, going back to your early life as a student, when you first discovered art, you were introduced to German expressionism and, and abstract expressionism. And I wonder what it was that appealed to you about that over the more figurative approach to art. You know, I had been that kid that drew well, you know, all my life. I'd been drawing, you know, since I can remember, but my family didn't, you know, I I was not educated about the arts. I could have named Rembrandt, Michelangelo, and Van Gogh probably, you know, maybe even Picasso. But it, it was art history. The fascinating thing about taking art history, even more so than taking painting, was that, you know, as a young person, you began to see people 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 500 years ago, that were grappling with the same kinds of questions or ideas that you you were. Your, so it just, it made me feel a lot less isolated, weird, and alone, you know, yeah. made me feel connected to something that had been ongoing for a long period of time. That idea of abstract expressionism to people who aren't artists, I think they look at it and they think, oh, it doesn't look too difficult. But but mastering it is incredibly difficult. So you set off with quite a tall order for yourself. (laughs) Well, there's a great quote by uh, one of my most influential professors, Walter Hollis Holly Stevens. Painting is easy. Making a really good painting is hard. And that, you know... I've been making things, playing with materials for almost 40 years now. So my practice has moved in several different directions. You know, the nature of the work has changed, but I keep finding myself coming back to formal abstraction. It seems to be how my head works. And when you're dealing with the purely abstract, you're never dealing with a what. You're always dealing with a completely elastic what if. So you can you can turn it upside down. You you know you can tear it in half because you're not depicting anything. So it's you know it, it's a it's a game of 
chess or yeah something like that a game of chess with color and shape yeah you describe in, in a couple of interviews I've read with you that you wanted to remove personal narrative from your work why why was that important to you I did the 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 work that was based in sort of generative systems the system driven work started as a studio exercise and that was one of the conscious efforts was to remove that personal narrative because I'd attempted I got tired of the work being about, you know, airing my own sort of dirty long, you know, it's not like, oh, Greg's in love, Greg had a, you know, I, I didn't want the paintings, or, or I wasn't really a painter at the time, but I, I didn't want personal narrative to be a part of any reading of the work. These things, I, I saw them as just like purely visual explorations. But this long-term residency experience, you're isolated from the world at large, but you're in this little compressed microcosm and, you know, every experience is amplified. So personal narrative really did return to the work. But I found, you know, as an older, I I had exhausted the means I knew how to deal with it uh, when I was younger. At this point, I felt a lot more comfortable and that I could address personal narrative as a sort of subject matter of a painting. And I got it, but it... A viewer or a reader wouldn't necessarily make those same connections. So I I felt comfortable with reintroducing it again. Do you think there's too much personal narrative in the visual art world? There's too much everything in the visual. I mean, anyone who's seen Maurizio Catalan taping, duct taping bananas to a wall in Miami, you know, there's too much, too much in the art world. I just, myself, I'd rather... I mean, I'd rather address the things that are like common to either us all or common to the natural world than than just things that are really specific to me. Uh, I'm just more comfortable approaching something larger yeah, than myself. (laughs) I don't trust my own judgment that well. (laughs) So on April Fool's Day, which maybe is, I don't know if that's relevant that it's April Fool's Day. I think it's significant (laughs) whether it's relevant or not. Yeah. And today is Friday the 13th. It is. Okay. You packed up your studio and your home and you headed just 100 miles away to a small artist community on the banks of the Spring Creek River or the Gasconade River. The Gasconade. With the idea of spending three months of isolation and art practice. What, before we get into why you stay for so long, what had attracted you to that particular artist community? Well, an old friend, someone that I had met at the Santa Fe Art Institute 10 years, well, at that point, just five years prior, reached out to me and said, hey, you know, apply to this place. It's awesome. It's, and, you know, I, I grew up in the hills and hollers of, you know, Tennessee and North Carolina. So when I arrived, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. It's a, you know, rustic 160 acre farm with three quarters of a mile of, of river. My, my studio was this ramshackle, that true story. The day I pull up, you know, and Siri is like, you have reached your destination. I call the executive director, like, I think I'm here. He goes, are you at the little white house on the river? I'm like, no, how do, you know, do I just keep driving down the gravel road? And he goes, yeah, what, what are you driving? I thought he wanted to identify my car. I'm like a white Dodge Caravan. And the response is, yeah, I think that'll make it. Okay, wait. So, you know, I drive like, thank God I'm in the right place because you can't back up. There's all these beware of dog. And, you know, it's like, oh, my God. But it was just, you know, this tiny little river house wrapped in Tyvek with an, an astonishing porch. You know, it's April Fool's Day and the river is feet from this porch. I was like, wow, this is a, I think I can make this work for a few months. So 
it was those first three months were amazing and productive. Um, there were other artists there. Where were oh, they? They couldn't all have been in the Little White River House. No. Uh, the the executive director, the, the couple who run the residency were in a house very close by. Then there were two other residences virtually one mile away, but one mile straight up a steep gravel road. Uh, so there were three, there were only four artists total at this point. There were three other artists who lived directly uphill. But they would come down to visit me because I had to. So, uh, as I said in in the introduction to your show uh, at Columbia College, you described the residency as confusing, at times wondrous, and ultimately terrifying. Can you expand on that for us? Well, you know, again, when I arrived, I was, you know, I I really did think I had died and gone to heaven. And I'd signed a contract for three months. The residency program has a gallery in town. They have ceramic facilities. But they had a gallery, and they were kind of hungry for programming. And I... I know an artist or two, you know, I get, there were two friends uh, from St. Louis, Michael Bailey, who runs Paul Art Space, Brandon Anschultz, who runs the Dust Lee Gallery, but, you know, was a Great Rivers Biennial winner. The three of us had long talked about doing a, you know, a group show, and well, I, I can bring those two guys here, and then we ultimately got that show to travel to Truman State and to a gallery in Brooklyn. But, um, you know, just other people, people I've worked with over the years from all over the country, you know, we were able to bring folks from New York, from Vancouver, Canada, from Los Angeles, from Texas, uh, through the gallery. So this, you know, this went from three months to possibly nine to more like 18, you know, and it just, this just kept, yeah. Why was it ultimately terrifying? I, I, I don't really, as of, as of this moment, I don't really feel comfortable going into all of those details. But it's, you know, it's an odd thing. I mean, I feel tremendously fortunate to have had an experience like this because, I, you know, well, everyone thought I was crazy. I, you know, I was 58 when I, when I was 28, I packed up everything I owned and moved to Germany. Nobody thought I was crazy. When I was 58, I packed up everything I owned and moved to a little farm on a river and everyone thought I was crazy. You know, I mean, they, but to have had this experience, you know, regardless of what all happened personally, to have four years to basically be, you know, focus on painting. And that's, you know, the, the book Rivers and Beasts, the book that we attempted to make there, Aaron Fine from uh, the, the chair of the art program at Truman State wrote a beautiful essay that there was a, tremendous shift in my practice you know I I had the work I had been doing before going there was really time consuming you know it was produced of repetition sequence and dispersal but I was repeating the same bit of information over and over and over again so I mean these things were fascinating and, and they illustrated how complexity can be born of repeated simple acts but it was it's time consuming you know so when I had a when I was living, I had a full time job and a daughter at home. A practice you could step into and step out of easily was really beneficial. And you find yourself at a residency and your studio time is limitless. I just I really felt like I needed to move through ideas more rapidly than this process would allow. So I started experimenting. I think in the thing at Columbia, I said tentatively at first, but then more widely and wildly. So, you know, I really hadn't painted on canvas in over 20 years, you know. And I, I hadn't even really identified myself as a painter. I, I was primarily making drawings and objects, and uh, that shifted dramatically. 
So I can understand why a three-month residency might become a six-month residency, but four and a half years, <laughs> why did you stay so long and how were you funding this? Were you selling a lot of work at the same time? Uh, no, no one is. I was not selling a lot of work, but I, yeah, selling work, you know, doing uh, university lectures, exhibitions. I mean, that's, you know, just, I even picked up two, I'm way too old for this anymore, but I even picked up two construction you know that I used to work in the trade, so I, I rehabbed a kitchen in Tennessee and helped an old friend who has a you know kind of high-end construction business in St. Louis hang a gigantic barn door from the 1700s in a in a studio gallery space. But so, but why why that long? I mean, for the the first couple of years were like magical and unbelievable, and and the thought of leaving you know never really crossed my mind, and you know just. Uh, I developed a real connection to this place. The geo- you know, I was never a fan of Thomas Hart Benton. You move to the middle of Missouri where there's like no people. It's that's really what it. You know, these rolling hills are not. They're not dramatic exaggerations. You know, that's really what this place looked like. So the you know my background in biology. It's an entomologist dream. Mm-hmm. I you know I've seen. I had a, there's a bobcat that used to come to my front yard. I've seen a pig run down the highway. Woodpeckers, flycatchers. I was one of the people. Everyone would ask me, you know, what's that plant? What's that salamander? What's that bird? And it dawned on me after a while that I could just start. I could just make up anything I wanted to, and everyone would probably believe me. But uh, you know, I, I just I felt a real connection to this place. It had, it had had such a such a dramatic impact on on me as a working artist. For a long time, it seemed natural to stay. So it was a very productive time. You created five large interconnected bodies of work and two books. Tell us a little bit about the, uh, about the 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 works that you created. Well, the the book Rivers and Beasts was a uh, you know something we attempted to make in 2017, and it. It presents four bodies of work. I, uh, you know, when I joked about like experimenting tentatively at first, you know, I'd gone from this repetition and pattern uh, uh, continued to play a role in the work, but the the systematic, you know, the, the the self-imposed systems, those things went away. So so the work didn't have to follow. I, I didn't have to follow my own self-imposed rules. I could I could experiment a little more wildly with form with the way forms interacted with one another there's a whole section in here i didn't realize when i was laying the book out but there's one section called up on a hill or the color purple and every single painting in it is made with one brush i have a three inch wide cantilevered japanese watercolor wash brush that's designed to dampen a huge area but it makes a perfect three inch line for you could probably make a five foot line before it ran out of material so still structuring things in terms of pattern and working with like repetition and sequence those things maintained throughout the course of these paintings but the landscape and everything itself really really radically impacted the nature of of what i was working with did your color palette change i think you described one where how suddenly the whole place exploded into green and there were so many different colors (laughs) of green. i have an ongoing grudge match with the color green well name two great green paintings you know that's like green is green is problematic i don't think just for me it's a it's a you know it's a crazy sort of 
color decision to work to work with so I would periodically go back to attempting a, a green painting I spent those three months playing with what I thought were really unnatural colors actually process magentas process pigments are pigments not derived from natural sources but you know created in a laboratory so I thought I was using these like insane artificial colors and and then I'd see the sunset and be like nope you know I was like all of you know all of these things I keep seeing but the yeah green out there when you're in the forest to that extent like you you sit and you look around and you there's so many different greens and then you see things that you I wouldn't even identify that as green were it not surrounded by other greens and you know I know that it's growing from a tree so I mean color had been largely absent from the work for a decade and a half I've been working with the simplest materials possible you know pencil and paper did you incorporate the environment? Like I know it, the river flooded many times when you were there. Did you incorporate <laughs> physical environment components, flood water? I into paint, your... I, a, a few of the paintings were actually made with flood water. Well, the, it, during the first three months, the river flooded. It didn't reach either of the houses, but it, it got so high that I took a kayak into the lower pasture. And, uh, you know, I was told, oh, don't worry, this is the 100-year flood. It's the 10-month flood. You know, we, we had four floods there, two of which required the evacuation of people and belongings. The river got up to 39. Generally, I can walk across this river without getting my shoulders wet. It got up to like 39 feet above flood stage. So it went from, you know, 80 feet wide to 2,000 yards wide. And, you know, when it gets to that point, it is it's a force to be reckoned with. You know, it's tearing trees from their banks. You, you'd see the roofs of buildings, you know, roaring down the river uh, at this we had to lash the propane tanks to the porches or they'd end up in mississippi and the studio your studio must have got flooded at some point did you lose artwork to the flood no uh, because uh the that first flood didn't get into the river houses and that, that's when i moved a mile i mean my god if my if my studio a mile uphill had flooded this would have been biblical we would have all been in in tremendous trouble but the flood you know the well, you know, Heraclitus famous, you can't step in the same river twice. Like being that close to a river, the you know, the, the thing that it does just constantly remind you of is that nothing stays the same. You know, the I've seen the river muddy, you know, the color of day old coffee, <laughs> green like a green glass bottle, so clear you can see all the mussel shells that, you know, would litter its floor from the from the river house deck. And I've seen it in my bedroom. <laughs> so you have, and it looks to me like the work at Columbia College is kind of in three, looks like there's three kind of bodies of work. How yeah. did you choose the works that you put in there? Well, that, I mean, I wanted to span, you know, work from this, work that spanned virtually this entire period of time. But, you know, having to leave as rapidly as I did, that affected the nature of the show at Columbia College. It sort of I ended up putting more things that I just needed to get out of the studio in the show than I would have initially hoped to. There are actually some really large works on paper that I was initially wanting to put in the show at Columbia College, but those curved walls are really tricky for long horizontal things. So, I mean, I think we did, uh, I had a lot of help from Scott McMahon. You know, I brought far more work than we could have included. So, you know, Scott and I made a lot of curatorial 
decisions uh, on the first day that we were laying it out and then hung the whole thing the next day. I'm always fascinated by the titles artists give to their works. Yours often sound like the titles of poems, like something about jealousy in the month of June and the golden age of whaling. How do you decide on titles and what comes first, the work or the title? The work, the work, the title always comes uh, when I'm working. This is what I was trying to kind of get at when I was talking about personal narrative returning. Yeah, I mean, something about jealousy in the month of June. Well, okay, yeah, but the viewer doesn't know what I'm... I, I believe the longest title in the show at Columbia College is Those Sweet, Sticky Summer Nights When Everything's in Bloom. But if you'd ever spent a night on this farm with a window open in July listening to night birds, every insect you can imagine, and you know, smelling the mimosa and the waking up with it, your pillow, your, your pillow is damp from the sweat. Talk a little bit about the time you mentioned after 2017 when you returned your final edits to the publisher for the Rivers and Beast book. And, it, and in your words, you washed ashore someplace foreign or unfamiliar and you felt lost. How did you find your way back again? Well, that, you know, that was, uh, we, we had, I had basically spent nine months um, working with a designer, Lisa Halley Melching, organizing, photographing, and laying out a book. And uh, then we turn all this stuff in. I walk in, and my studio is just everything that I've finished is photographed and put away. You know, the walls are, are wiped bare. The floors are just littered with like bits and pieces of things. So that's that's what the second book, After the Flood, came from. The second book is, I believe, seventeen or eighteen small, tiny watercolors. Most of them made in a single day. So whenever I would get lost, you know, rather than tackling something large, I'd pull out this little 10 by seven inch watercolor pad and you can work out an idea like really, really rapidly with that. So, you know, they were a way of finding my way again, you know, sort of getting my bearings back. You know, I wasn't, I could move, I, but I just, I didn't know what, you know, I didn't have a map or a compass. So I didn't, I didn't really know which direction was the direction in which to move. So that's what these little things, you know, that's the, the function they served. And this book, we invited uh, 12 poets to contribute, not not to interpret. I, you know, I, I hate that ekphrasis, not to interpret the work, but to simply respond or react to it. So 10 poets from the U.S., two from Europe. And, you know, we ended up with what I, with a little book I'm actually really proud of. So, well, let's have you read a poem from the book After the Flood, which is your most recent book. I'm not sure we have time for two, but let's just do maybe one by John Dorsey. Let's do. Called At 59, which was <laughs> written about you. It was at indeed. At the age of 59. Yeah. Well, that is, so we basically, we paired... Several people wrote about the same work, but, you know, we, we connected each poem to one of the paintings. So John's is about the very last painting, October again. I'm no poet, but here goes. So at 59, Greg talks about wasted years and missed opportunities. They used to pop up like the sunrise, he says, sipping a flat beer on his porch in the middle of winter in Missouri. In his head, he's a young man, watching the Berlin Wall go down on a busted black and white TV, imagining the future while searching for bones to place on canvas in the rubble. He crushes a dead leaf, scattering its ashes in the snow. Summer will be here before you know it, he says, and the sun will be blood red with redemption. So this is a poem by my friend John Dorsey. John and I did a collaborative book together called Shoot the Messenger in 2017. John's in this book. 
and then earlier this year I did the cover for a book of poetry by John and another poet Dan Crocker so yeah John and I have continued to collaborate we, we've been the closest we've lived like 12 feet apart on this residency and actually Rivers and Beasts the first book the title it may John may have suggested this title in show and jest but it's the title we went with so John and I have continued to collaborate on projects are all the poets that are in after the flood were they all people that you met at their residency no, no. Uh, in fact uh, only two are, are people that I've actually met at the residency uh, two others I met and uh, or three others I met at the Santa Fe Art Institute several years ago but they're all people that I have you know just met over the past you know 10 15 20 years so who are some of the people that have influenced you artistically I mean that list is that list is both almost too long and too obscure. There are, you know, the usual sort of uh, historical figures, but I read more science than art criticism or history currently. The painter Tom Noskowski, who just passed away six, nine months ago, uh, if you're a contemporary abstract painter, you probably know who this guy is. If you're not, you've probably never heard of him, but, you know, I thought he was one of the most clever abstract painters I've come across in a long time. Do you think of yourself as an artist scientist? No, I mean, I, I'm still a lay person. I can still identify a whole bunch of insects by both genus and species. But, you know, I'm, I'm not a... I see myself as hopefully pioneering and doing some things as an artist, as a, a lay person in the sciences. I, I'm just struggling to keep up with contemporary theory, which is fascinating. Before we close, just tell us uh, what is next for you, Greg. Where are you off to now? You finished your residency? <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's the $64,000 question. I'm, I'm doing a sort of a one-month emergency residency right now. You know, there's a couple of options uh, that I'm going to have to make a decision about very soon. New Year's 2020 is no kidding. It's going to be a new year. So, <laughs> a new decade. Yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not exactly certain. Well, keep us posted. I promise. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> My second act guest today has been artist Greg Edmondson. An exhibit of Greg's work is on display at Columbia College's Larson Gallery until January the 3rd. The gallery is free to visit and open to the public seven days a week from 9 till 5. But the gallery will be closed over the holidays just from the 24th to the 26th of December and also on January the 1st. Greg's two books, Rivers and Beasts and After the Flood, are available online or by special order through local bookstores. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. You are listening to speaking of the arts before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way onto your calendars after this weekend the arts really start to quieten down until after the new year so if your art glass needs topping up this is the time to do it at the Lyceum Theatre in Arrowrock it is opening weekend for their production of A Christmas Carol tickets are $40 showtime is 7pm and the show continues through next weekend at Talking Horse Productions the Hugo Vianello comic opera and antique Carol is in its final weekend. There are shows tonight and tomorrow at 7.30 plus 2pm matinees on both Saturday and Sunday and tickets are $15. And there's yet more Christmas on stage out of town in Jefferson City where Plaid Tidings is on at Capital City Productions. The dinner theatre doors open at 6pm tonight, tomorrow and Sunday night um, and it's a 7.30 show. Plus there's also a matinee performance tomorrow and doors for that show open at 11.30 and tickets including your meal are $38. In Macon, Maple's 
Rep Theatre has performances of every Christmas story ever told and then some. That show's on tonight and tomorrow at 7.30. Plus, there is a final 2pm matinee on Sunday. And at the Presa Arts Centre in Mexico, Elf the Musical is in its final weekend with 7pm performances tonight and tomorrow and a final 2pm matinee on Sunday. And tickets for that show start from $12. If you want to avoid holiday-themed shows, then head to Columbia Entertainment Company for their production of the two-person play about romance, loss and overcoming prejudice called Last Train to Nibrock. I keep pronouncing it Nibrock, but I think it's Nibrock. Apologies to people in Nibrock. Playtime tonight and tomorrow is 7.30 plus a final 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets are $14. And the Mobile Funk Unit and Loose Loose will be performing tonight at Burr Oak Brewing starting um, at 6pm. It's for the Brewery Night Live. It's the last concert of the year and there's a $5 cover charge. Tomorrow evening from 5 till 9pm at Cafe Berlin they are holding their Berlin Bazaar Winter Market featuring local artisans and their handmade wares. And at Skylark Bookshop shop at 7pm tomorrow there's a reading of the classic the polar express complete with cookies and cocoa and you're invited to wear your pjs the event is free but an advanced rsvp via skylark's facebook page is requested so they know how many cookies to bring sunday afternoon the missouri symphony orchestra presents its annual symphony of toys holiday concert concert starts at 3pm tickets are 20 dollars for adults and children aged 17 and under are free also on sunday afternoon jabberwocky studios has their first musical production with two performances of Elf Junior the musical featuring 30 local children. The two shows are at 3 and 6pm and tickets are 8 for adults and 5 for children. Sunday night comedian Greg Morton is on at the Blue Note as part of the Como Comedy Club season. His show starts at 7pm and tickets are $25 and at Rose Music Hall on Sunday night singer-songwriter and multi-instrumentalist Josh Nolan is on concert uh, in concert at 8pm and tickets for his show are $6. It's quite a quiet midweek, but next Thursday, December the 19th, constitutional scholar Frank O. Bowman will be giving a talk at 6pm at Skylock Bookshop about his book, High Crimes and Misdemeanors, which coincidentally looks at the history of impeachment and its roots in medieval England through to the current day and an examination of the case for and against impeachment of President Trump. On a lighter note, you can watch Gremlins at the Blue Note at 7.30 as part of their Holiday Brew and View series. And finally, at Rose Music Hall next Thursday, there is a benefit for True North, courtesy of the Byron Amps Holiday Party, which will feature Violet and the Undercurrents, the Jesse Johnson Band, Ray Fitzgerald and Ruth Acuff. And you have been listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia, with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Until then, stay arty, Columbia.